So when we were grown, kids when I was your age, we had a saying that we used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And I want to tell you, you may have heard that as well, and it's not the truth. That's a lie. Sticks and stones can break our bones because we can get hurt if somebody beats us with a stick or throws stones at us. But names that people call us can hurt just as badly or even worse. And so what we're trying to do, why your parents bring you to church and what it is we're trying to do here is to create a safe place where Nobody's going to throw sticks and stones at you, or nobody's going to say names to you to hurt your feelings. Because the names that people call us can sometimes really, really hurt. And while we may have a cast, a plaster that a doctor would put on to heal a broken bone, or we may get iodine for a scrape. That's how old I am. We had iodine. Um, there's probably some antibacterial agent you could put on now. But for the, the wounds that hurt when people call us bad names, the best medicine I know for that is to find people that love you and accept you and will be kind to you and see the beauty that's inside you. And that's what we're trying to create here. So I want you to know this is a safe place for you. Nobody's going to call you names. And you are more than welcome here. And we are so glad to have you. So God, we pray blessings on Kathy and Terry, who I think is going down with her, to be with the children. Children, we want you to know you are loved here and we are so glad to have you. May God bless you. Amen. Well, I, I should give this as a preamble to the reflection this morning. I came across this quote, and, and you may, by the end of the reflection, agree with these words. I hope you, you might not. But at any rate, in 1857, a man named Anthony Trollope wrote these words. There is perhaps no greater hardship at present of inflicted on mankind in civilized and free countries than the necessity of listening to sermons. <laughs> so nearly 200 years ago, that was the wisdom of Anthony Trollope. I hope I won't live up to that expectation. But in the last several months as I've been here, I, I've suggested that as a church, one of the primary tasks or projects we should be about is helping to make the invisible God visible. That that's what Jesus did. He lived and behaved and taught in such a way as to make the invisible God visible. And as followers of Jesus, that should be our work as well. How can we make God more visible? And last week, when our readings from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, you are salt, I suggest that Jesus is telling us that we should be able to make, see, help people see what God tastes like. And when Jesus says, you are light, let your light shine, that we should be revealing light so that people can see 
what God is like because Jesus says in that text that we do our works so that people will give glory to our creator, that we do what we do, we behave the way we behave so that people will give glory to our creator. And so that's the project that I think underlines these words that Sandy read to us from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, which can sound very harsh <clears throat> to our 21st century ears. And I'm going to suggest that what Jesus might be teaching us here is that the way we behave towards each other is very significant in our project of making the invisible God visible. How we talk to each other, how we treat each other goes a long way in proclaiming and making this invisible God visible to the city of Ashland, in the county of Jackson, in the state of Oregon, in 20 and 21. So let's look at these very briefly. So in the first paragraph, Sandy read, how we talk to each other is really important. I can't call you idiot and fool or other very nasty, slurish names and reflect well on this being that we pretend to try to follow. That's not good. You can't do that. That's not a good way to be. And in fact, I'm going, I have suggested before, and I'm going to say it again. Look, I have studied the Bible for well over 50 years. I know that dates me, but I have. And I've really studied it. And if anything, I have come to the conclusion, the most important thing in the Bible to this being that we name God is relationships. How we relate to each other, how we relate to the sacred other. That's what so much of the whole book is about, is how we relate. Now, part of the difficulty can be the way people related over 2,000 years ago in a Semitic culture that was very different than ours, to try to take that same exact behavior and apply it here is somewhat crazy. I mean, there was one of the laws in the Old Testament that a menstruating woman was not allowed to be within the city limits until her period was over. Then she could have a ritual bath and be readmitted into the city. Well, we're not going to be bussing ladies that are having a menstrual cycle outside this. We're not going to send them to Talent in Phoenix until it's over and then let them come back to act. We don't do that. We realize that's not a good thing to do. And so there are cultural differences. But the heart, the point is relationally, and I don't want to try to get into whatever that had to do relationally, but how we talk to each other is really, really important. And that's the heart of what Jesus is saying. We have to talk to each other with kind words. We have to believe the best of each other, to try to pull the best out of each other. And using pejorative language and name-calling is not the way to do it. So, I'm saying, so that's the cliff notes, if you will, of paragraph one. Paragraph two, Jesus is talking about how we make amends. And I'll get to that in a minute. Hold your seat. Oh, I, I can tell you can't wait. Paragraph three is about uh, lust. And I, and I think the point of what Jesus may be suggesting to us 
is it is inappropriate to consider other human beings as commodities or objects for my personal gratification. Because when we lust, we objectify. So we don't have a real relationship with them as a human being. We, we, we create a fantasy and, and we objectify them and make them a commodity for our own pleasure. That's not good. That's not good relationally, I believe, is what Jesus is saying. And in fact, I wasn't going to share this, but I, somebody, you know, we have sisters and brothers of the fundamental traditions that like to take things literally. And there was an early church father named Origen who took the teaching in this paragraph literally and cut off certain parts of his body so that he wouldn't lust. And fortunately, he wrote to the rest of us, don't do it, it doesn't help. <laughs> so, yeah, because the problem isn't there, it's, it's there. And, at any rate, so I digress. And then the next paragraph is about divorce. And, and this is a complex issue, and there is so much to say about this, and I can't do it in 10 minutes on a Sunday sermon. But the word divorce has been used to beat people up and to shame people, and that's not good. In fact, I suggest what Jesus is doing in this text is trying to put safe barriers around divorce, because in the craziness of this time and place, men could divorce women for the silliest of reasons. And as unfair as it will sound to you and get your cackles up, women were not allowed to divorce men in the Jewish culture of the day. Only a man could divorce. And all the man had to do was write on a piece of paper, I divorce you, divorce you hand it to his wife, and it's done, she's out. And that's correct. If... if he didn't like the way breakfast was served. He could, it was called a get, a G-E-T. Just write a piece of paper. I divorce you. Or didn't like the way his wife was aging or partner was aging. I divorce you. And, and I think Jesus is suggesting that's crazy. You can't do that to people. That promotes insecurity and fear and it's oppressive. And so I suggest Jesus is trying to, to get rid of that nonsense. But in the years since, we've used divorce as a shaming thing. That if you're divorced, you can't be a minister. If you're divorced, you can't be this. Or if you're a divorcee, you're a failure. Or if you're a divorcee, there's some, oh, what was really going on there? What's, what's the real story? Yeah, they say it's amicable. but <laughs> Well, for those of us that may want to read the Bible literally, did you know that God is a divorcee? In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, God divorced Israel. And God did it again in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. You can look it up. It's in the Bible. I'm not making this up. God wrote a get, a certificate of divorce. So God is a divorcee. So if you've got a problem with divorcees, take it up with God. I think the point here is relationships are sacred. Living out there is hard. And we want to create a sanctuary where it's safe and where you're nurtured and accepted and not be in a relationship that is oppressive or, or uh, violent or where you're abused. That's not what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is where we nurture and support one another and we choose to grow together. And it's a sacred bond and should be.
and it shouldn't be dissolved easily, but it also should not last longer than its end date and end up in oppression and pain and suffering and torture. It's not supposed to be that. So that's the cliff notes on that. And once again, I know that's a highly complex issue, and I have studied it, and we can talk about it at some point if you want. So let's go back to the making of amends, which for me, in the life of our congregation, I think is incredibly uh, a cogent word for us, an important word. In the text that Sandy read, with her teeth gritted as she read it, <laughs> Jesus says to us, if you know someone's got something against you, before you come make your sacrifice at the altar, go make it right. And notice he doesn't say, if you've got a problem with somebody, go make it right. What he literally says is if you've heard it through the grapevine or you saw on Facebook that somebody's got a problem with you, you reach out to them first. You go to them to make amends. Because what the desire here is reconciliation, that we get along. And if it's any comfort to you, Look, in, in the history of our congregation, I know the last couple of years have been tough, have been hard. We've had some disagreements. Feelings have been hurt. Words, sticks and stones have wounded, or the words, not the sticks and stones, have wounded people in our, in our community. And the reality is, from the very first church, if you read the, Paul, the letters of Paul in the Bible, they had the same problems we have. They had disagreements and fights and arguments. It's ever, you get a church together, you're going to have that stuff. What is important is how we reconcile that. How we make amends, I'm suggesting, helps make the invisible God visible. How we go about the project of repairing relationships, because relationships just have hard times. That's what happens. But how we repair them says so much about us and the God we proclaim to try to follow. So in specific example. So in the last couple of years, it was a hard time in, in Pastor Christina's leaving of us, the ending of her ministry. There was just some really hard times and hard things. And we, as a congregation, have hired Reverend uh, Dr. Uh, Karen McClintock to come as a consultant to lead us in this reconciliation pro process to figure, what did we do? What should we have done? What could we, how could we be better? Because we don't want that kind of thing happening again. We want to learn how to get along. And so she's been leading us in a listening post project for the last several months where more than 75 or 80% of us have participated to give voice to here's how I saw what happened. Here's how it felt to me. Here's what I experienced. So that we really listen to, to what came down. And now we're in the process of analyzing what has come out of that. And the process will begin of some of us making amends. Of, of trying to work towards reconciliation. And I'm going to suggest a couple of ways we might consider that here in a moment. But the first thing I want to say, it came up Fridays at noon. I do a, a Bible study online Zoom of the text that we read on Sunday. So 
a couple days ago, there were about 10 of us, 12 of us, I don't know, on Zoom talking about this text that Sandy read. And one of the folks in the, in the group, and there's information on this in the e-weekly comes out if you want to join it, anybody can sign on. But uh, one of the folks in the group made the brilliant observation. And I said I was going to share this, and I won't say who it is because I don't want to embarrass it, but it was brilliant. They were saying, look, some of our, a lot of this comes down to interpretation. And we have Christian sisters and brothers and siblings of a more fundamental nature, a path, that take things literally. And they interpret the Bible literally, or try to. And, And they may sit us down in a conversation and say, you're not a real Christian because you got to realize you're a horrible sinner and the only reason God loves you is because of what Jesus did and unless you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, you're going to burn forever in hell. Now, I know you've had conversations like that with people. How does that make you feel? Not real good. That'd make me feel good. But that's one interpretation of these texts we call the Bible. That's one interpretation. Now there's other interpretations. And what this person in the study group was saying on Friday was have we done that with Reverend Christina's departure? Have we interpreted things differently? Did council really do that or say that? Did so-and-so really say that? Or is that just our interpretation of what happened? Oh, man, that's pretty amazing. And if, if you watch the cop shows on TV, I like to I watch the English ones, the BBC ones, because they're not as scary or gory. But if you watch any, if you've seen two cop shows, you know the worst thing a cop wants is an eyewitness, because eyewitnesses are incredibly unreliable because they're interpreting things in their way. And so what cops want are DNA, they want a smoking gun, they want fingerprints, they want something that's provable. But eyewitnesses drive them crazy. And and we have a lot of eyewitnesses to what came down in the last couple of years. And it's not all that reliable. And we've made, said things based on eyewitness information, which may be interpreted correctly or not. And so what I'm suggesting, some of us should look inside if if we know someone's been hurt by something I said or did. Can maybe I seek them out for a conversation, an invitation to just talk and explore what really might have happened, what I really might have meant, whatever it is I said what I said, or you heard whatever it is you heard. But to to do it in an inviting way rather than saying, you know, when you, you were really evil when you said, that's not a great way to start an amends conversation. An amends conversation has started really well when I say, you know, this happened. This is what I think I heard. This is how it made me feel. Is that what was really going on? How did that sit with you? And you may come back and say, no, good golly, no, that's the last thing on my mind. That is, no, I'm so sorry you feel that. Oh, you carried that for you, I'm sorry. Or they may come back and say, yeah, that is what I meant, because you said, well, and which, but to make it an inviting conversation where we learn, the, the idea here is that we be reconciled, that we grow, because as we mend our relationships, 
it gives evidence to this kind of being that we're trying to follow and serve. I've learned over the years, the relationships are like gardens. They need tending. Weeds grow up, and you pull the weeds, and you think you got all the dandelions, and now you never have to weed again. Well, that's silly, because weeds just grow back up. And so when it's time to weed, you weed. And when it's time to enjoy the produce, you enjoy the produce. And when it's time to smell the beauty of the flowers, you smell the beauty of the flowers. But there will be a time to weed again, trust me. And relationships are like that. And so, tending to our relationships. By the way, this is for free. But in two days, it's Valentine's Day. So if there's certain relationships you want to seed into, remember in two days, it's Valentine's Day. That, that, no cost for that. But So how we amend, how we make amends, how we reconcile. So the two things I would say about reconciliation. Number one, in our project of making amends, is you really need to be in an emotionally safe kind of space to do this. And I want to make real clear the context here. I'm not talking about if someone was in, in an abusive situation where they were being physically abused or mentally abused or verbally abused or sexually abused. You get out of that. That's, it's not time for mending of that. You get safe. Safety is what it's about for yourself and any minors that may be with you. So I'm not talking about in, in an abusive or hurtful, physically or mentally hurtful situation. That's not a time for mending. That's a time for get safe. But in this discussion, when there's been just disagreements and differing opinions and hurt feelings that it's good to be in an emotionally safe place to begin the amending conversation, to be well supported, to have some grounding of your own, and, and to come into it with an openness of looking for more information in an invitational way rather than a shaming or blaming way. So that's one thing. The other thing is this. The, the whole premise of making amends is wanting to be reconciled. I want to be in relationship. I want to be reconciled to you. Understanding that being reconciled with you means that we both grow. I get to grow as well as you. And so the, the fundamental aspect of making amends is the desire to reconcile. If there's no desire to reconcile, making amends is impossible. So that's the first place we have to get to an arm. So these are some thoughts to consider as you're about to enter the week and as we are about to enter the season of Lent, a time of reflection. Are there folks in my life to make amends with? How might I go about that? How would be a safe way to do that? An inviting way. That's what I'm going to ask you to consider uh, from these moments we've shared together and how you might do that this week or in the weeks to come. We'll have opportunity to do that as well on Ash Wednesday evening. But I want to say again, I want to underscore, I believe the nugget of what Sandy read to us from the Matthew 5 text this morning is about our relationships, that they should be nurturing 
and they should be helping us grow, that they should be a safe place for us to become all that God dreams us to be. And how we repair our relationships helps make the invisible God more visible.